Hi, Jill. Yeah? Can you hear me? Can you hear me, Jill? Yeah, I can hear you. Jill um, moved to Cary, and I think we initially became acquainted with him. He just basically turned up at our church on a Sunday. I would describe him as dedicated, uh, consistent, loyal. He was always trying to, to learn more and kind of embodied that spirit, you know, that America says it values uh, of self-improvement and bootstraps and all that. If there was anybody who actually did that, it's Jill McKinney. I just told him that, no, you know, she's a case is not a reality. She's not, he's not the priority. Right. You, know, you have to just, you know, get the file ready and then, you know, it's going to work, you know. They made you think that maybe uh, it was going to be all right? The last appointment that we'd gone to, I remember distinctly Officer Kelly telling us that deportation was not a thing we had to worry about. And then can you describe that day at that appointment when you uh, left Wes and went back for the appointment? Yeah, the, 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 the last day, me. Okay, uh, you know what, what is going to happen. And that's when he, he started to explain that uh, I'm going to be there. Now it was crazy for me. Yeah, I was crushed. I remember sitting in the conference room, and I remember when Joe called um, for the first time from York Detention Center in South Carolina. Um, and the sadness and anger and fear that was in his voice, the distress, um, when he said, pastor, pastor, they trapped me. It frankly, I, 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 find, it, I find it scandalous um, that, that his uh, asylum appeal was, was apparently you know, so easily denied. Um, I think it's really a miscarriage of justice. You know, ICE then uses incarceration as a litigation strategy because I mean this the conditions in the jail are not you know good by any stretch of the imagination so a lot of people will you know just give up on their cases even if they have a, a potential case to fight because they just you know don't want to stay here you know I think the first question people ask you know why you know why are we doing this you know, why are we detaining people this way the, the 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 product that this corporation you know produces is incarcerating people and at the yeah, same time the was there yeah and so we had a pretty significant fear that he would be taken up in the middle of the night and deported and dropped in the congo with with nothing and no way to reach us and no resources yeah early in the morning was he Maybe two. They came and. Uh, but I know. I, I mean, I knew they, they, they was doing. You know. Yeah. And they, they came and uh, say, uh, you know, pack your things. Uh, you are ready. So what have you uh, what have you been up to in Brazzaville since you've been back there? What what's life like? I'm not working. I can't work. There's no work for me. 
I mean, uh, that's what I, I, I said to, uh, uh, to Pastor Alfred, uh, yeah. Wes, thanks to the church, you know, the support uh, they're giving me. I mean, it, it would have been a very, very hard catastrophic, I would say. Yeah, I'm praying. Uh, let's pray hopefully. Uh, I will uh, get out of here. You know, so, yeah. Yeah, I say uh, greetings uh, to all the folks. I will. I'm thinking of them a lot, and uh, I know that, uh, yeah, I know that uh, they, they have me in, uh, in their prayer. Yeah, spiritually, we are together, right? <laughs> so. I'm Stephen Stacks, and this is Inhospitable. Last time we concluded the story of Jill Bikindu's deportation to the Republic of Congo from the United States. Jill had been in the United States for over 10 years and had been living legally under an order of supervision, which was abruptly and arbitrarily taken away under the conditions of some of Donald Trump's first executive orders about immigration. Jill was ordered deported, but was instead detained for 45 days without having committed a crime. While in detention, his medical conditions, ranging from diabetes to HIV, led to repeat hospitalizations and ultimately transferred to a public prison because ICE's private prisons had put him in mortal danger. After weeks without medication in ICE custody, Jill was deported in a weakened state. Woken up early one morning, ICE put him on a flight to Brazzaville, where he faced potential political persecution and no access to the medications his body depended on in the United States. Jill is still living in the Congo without the possibility of employment, adequate medical care, or return to the U.S. Throughout the process of telling this story, we've spoken to several people from around the country about the American immigration system and the private prison system that accompanies it. In this final episode, we give time to many of them to talk about what they believe are misconceptions about immigration in the U.S. and what they believe people should do in response to the injustices in our current system. We'll conclude the episode with a roundtable of Jill's pastors who played critical roles in the fight against his deportation. First, we spoke with Dr. Casey Bishop, a professor in the Immigration Law Clinic at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. You'll remember her from our episode about the asylum system. You'll also hear from Hans Christian Lenartz, Jill's attorney and an immigration lawyer in Raleigh, North Carolina. Um, I, a lot of it is... Dr. Bishop. And I think that... Um, I think a lot of people don't understand just how what few lines there are to get in and how long they are. Right. 
Um, I also think that there's a misconception about what many people's ancestors did. Um, that they're and what the laws were then. and what the laws were then, and that there was not the same sort of immigration laws that we have now. We had exclusion laws sometimes, but we mostly just had naturalization laws in terms of you show up here, you don't have a contagious disease, you have a family member here, and you're well for a while you were white. Yeah, you're from right skin color. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like yeah. you um, can be a citizen and not sort of recognizing that actually people are trying to do it lawfully and that a lot of our a lot of the people coming in in an undocumented way or crossing the border are actually trying to join family members who have applied for them lawfully and it's just that they're waiting mm -hmm. for a long time for those visas to actually come available. My great-great-grandparents came from Dusseldorf, uh, Germany and landed in near Brownsville, Texas. Uh, Hans Christian Lenartz. They went through no process at all. They got there and applied to the nation of Texas for a land grant huh. under a Homestead Act. Uh, uh, but it's totally different from that now. Uh, many people seem to think it's very easy to immigrate legally to the United States. It is very, very difficult. There are rigid numerical quotas in every almost every category of immigration to the United States that make it uh, extremely well, that fully limit the number of people per year in any category who can get in to the country. The expense burden is very, very high to immigrate legally, uh, to pay for people like me, but also to pay government fees and to comply with regulations that, that uh, are associated with immigration. For example, if an employer wants to bring someone to the United States, that employer has to comply with a federal wage uh, requirement that does not apply to any of their other employees mm. uh, and usually those wages are set at a higher level than an ordinary small employer can pay and then there are other requirements like that that just again make it much more burdensome much more difficult um, so that's the first one I, I, and one of the worst I think misconceptions that oh and you, all you have to do is get in line uh, the truth is there is no line so I think that's one misconception I think the other is that they're you know, we hear a lot, stealing jobs, stealing benefits. I think we don't take a hard look at what jobs are actually being done and where and what, who is not choosing to do those jobs and, who, you know, who's or not available to do those jobs and then... What would happen without... What would happen? <laughs> without any immigrants to, to do those... Yeah, to do those jobs. And then I think what a lot of people don't know is that many... Um, immigrants, non-citizens are paying into our tax system and we're benefiting and people are getting social security benefits for instance from people who don't have status who are paying into the system but can't, can't draw. ever draw on it. But in addition to that uh, the idea that immigrants can be a, are a drain on the economy is, is uh, completely wrong. Even immigrants who come in uh, for compassionate reasons, as, as refugees or U-Visa holders who are here because they were victims of crimes in the United States, those as well tend to have a higher rate of employment, tend to start businesses at twice the rate that native-born American citizens do, and tend to get twice as many patents and copyrights. Uh, now, these are higher level kinds of things, patents and copyrights, but still, immigrants tend to be 
uh, uh, uniformly more beneficial uh, to the United States economy than the average uh, person like me who was born here. Mm -hmm. uh, a second one is the idea that uh, immigrants uh, are, might be a threat to the United States either in terms of their drain on the public trough or because they tend to commit crimes, things like that. The truth of the matter is, and this is well documented, that immigrants commit crimes at a lower rate than native-born Americans. You're going to have some criminals in any population, but it's a lower, significantly lower rate than most Americans. I think that's possibly because they have uh, a greater incentive to behave. Mm -hmm. uh, the costs of misbehavior are much higher if you face deportation rather than just a couple of nights in, in jail. Yeah, and I guess uh, if you were, say, um, a person in Mexico who wanted to immigrate to the United States, um, what, uh, you know, I think a lot of us are aware of the, the lottery, which I think you uh, mm -hmm. referenced earlier with when you're talking about quotas and whatnot, but, mm -hmm. you know, is that the, is that the, the option? I mean, what are the options to, quote, immigrate uh, legally to, or to get in the line, quote, unquote? Yeah. Uh, well, here we're talking about immigrating as as what the law calls an immigrant, a lawful permanent resident, getting a green card. Mm -hmm. And there are basically four main routes to doing that. One of them, is, we've already talked about asylum. Mm -hmm. If you can claim that in your home country you would be persecuted on the basis of race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or membership in a particular social group, then you can initially get one year period as an asylee and then move on to a green card. Uh, that's virtually impossible to do from Mexico because even if you're from an area of Mexico where there's bad criminality, uh, drug cartels, that kind of thing, uh, the requirement for asylum is the persecution that you fear has to be individualized. So it can't simply be general bad criminal conditions. But in addition to that, it has to exist as a threat to you throughout the entire country. Mm -hmm. And the reality is Mexico is a very big country and there are plenty of places uh, uh, the average Mexican could, at least in theory, move uh, where he or she would not face the risk of drug, drug violence or whatever. So that's no good. Lottery. The lottery is a strange creature of a few years ago, uh, actually designed to try and increase the number of white Europeans who were immigrating to the United States. This is when a lot of the people who were coming in were more of color and Congress decided, oh, we, we want to see more Finns and Swedes, Norwegians and uh, British. So let's get, set some slots aside for people who are underrepresented in the current pool of immigrants mm -hmm. uh, in terms of worldwide population. Well, guess who's overrepresented and who doesn't get into the lottery? <laughs> Mexicans, yes. Mexicans, Colombians, uh, uh, Chinese and uh, Indians are all excluded from the lottery, and so are quite a number of other countries, but uh, those in particular. So that's no good for a Mexican. Let's see. Employment-based. There are several levels of uh, immigration that are possible depending upon how high level a person is qualified in his or her field of work. If you've won a Nobel Physics Prize, you can get a green card without a whole lot of effort. Mm -hmm. um, some expense, but not a whole lot of effort you pretty much automatically qualify. But if you're an ordinary laborer, it's very difficult. Your employer has to be so committed to you uh, that he or she will go through a round of advertising, seeking American workers to fill your slot, 
will, uh, uh, and, and this is many kinds of advertising, not, no one is sufficient, uh, then has to get a prevailing wage determination from the, immigrate, from the labor department and has to guarantee to pay you that, usually higher than average market wage. Has to pay fees for people like me, immigration lawyers, for the advertising, for uh, other administrative uh, hoops, including a couple of applications to the immigration service. Um, and then uh, has to wait for you because in most of these categories, there's a long waiting period. I mentioned there's quotas. And in most categories of immigration, the quota that exists for a given year is exceeded by the number of people who qualify to fill that quota. Mm -hmm. So a backlog develops. Right now, to get in on an employment-based uh, basis as a ordinary worker, uh, well, let's, this is a worker with a bachelor's degree. If you're from India, you have to wait 15 years. How many employers are going to do that? <laughs> um, then uh, the other one is family-based. Uh, and there's, there's a number of relatives who can petition. If you have United States citizen or lawful permanent resident relatives, you can petition in certain circumstances for a very close relative. Now, your theoretical Mexican immigrant, he may not have any of those. Mm -hmm. He may not have an employer either, in which case that person's simply out of luck in terms of immigrating to the U.S. It's so unlike it was uh, all the way up until the 20th century when uh, it was simply possible to land at New York Harbor and if you didn't have a loathsome disease or couldn't be classified as a, a, an idiot, lunatic, criminal, or prostitute, you would uh, get in. When it comes to what you can do about the immigration system and all its flaws, from sluggishness to outright cruelty, the first thing many of the people we interviewed said was to educate yourself. One of the goals of telling this story on Inhospitable was to connect it to wider themes, problems, and issues in the immigration system writ large. Emilcar Valencia, who works with El Refugio near Stewart Detention Center, said understanding was important. Well, uh, I mean, if you're listening to this podcast, it's because you're interested to learn more and, and to get into uh, understand better the reality. Um, I think it's important to, um, uh, you know, know from the experience of those who are, uh, you know, either face detention or families who might be uh, in danger of, of face uh, detention and deportation, um, and uh, connect through their stories um, to see people um, as all of us who have rights, no matter where you were you know, born or, you know, if you have papers or not, you are still a human being and you should be respected and you have a, your, you know, dignity um, that should not, you know, should not and, and, and should never, you know, be taken away from, from any person. So um, I think if you approach to this lens to the, to the reality of immigration and immigrants in general, um, you know, you'll be closer to, um, you know, be an ally and supporter Marty Rosenbluth, the only immigration attorney in Lumpkin, Georgia, agreed. Um, but, I mean, I think the most important thing that um, that people can do is to, first of all, to educate themselves about how badly um, broken the immigration system is and the immigration laws are, and then, you know, educate others. I mean, the, the, the misconceptions about 
you know, how easy it is to stay here. And, you know, if people, you know, didn't become a citizen when they had the opportunity that it's their fault they're being deported. And, you know, people just have no idea at all um, how, you know, difficult it is to find a path to um, citizenship once you're already here. I mean, it's it's pretty darn near impossible getting more um, difficult all the time. The stuff that's happening at the border now, um, I mean, I don't know when this is going to, you know, um, air, but, you know, the Trump administration put pressure on the Mexican government to deport immigration attorneys yesterday. There was a group of immigration attorneys that were down in Mexico and the Trump administration put pressure on Mexico to deport them. I mean, you know, what's going on now is just totally insane. And then if you're already involved, uh, you know, continue to supporting families, continue to supporting those who are uh, right now in risk or are uh, detained already or are, you know, have family or loved ones who um, are in detention. Emil Carr, Valencia. Uh, support them and um, uh, do your best to advocate, you know, become an advocate and speak out. Um, many times, you know, people who are facing deportation, families, immigrants in general, speak by themselves, but we need more allies. We need more people who are able to, um, uh, you know, be on board and support and call uh, representatives and, and write letters or support. Um, uh, you know, there, there are many ways people can, can get involved. Uh, you know, support organizations that are doing the work, uh, either financially or volunteering with those organizations, um, write letters to people in detention. Uh, again, these places are, are meant to uh, uh, isolate people more from the community and their loved ones. Um, and an easy way to um, connect with them is to let them know that they're not alone, mm. uh, that there is more people fighting for them and, uh, and that you care for them. Marty Rosenbluth noted that there is a lot more attention on immigration now than under the Obama administration, and this has led to an explosion of nonprofits confronting issues in the immigration system. Well, and like when, when journalists call me um, and ask me what the main difference is between, you know, Obama and Trump, I say, you called me. You know, you know journalists really were not, um, you know, paying attention. Yeah. For, for so many years. And I mean, not to, not to diss the nonprofit community, because I mean, they, they finally now have stepped in and stepped up and are, you know, doing defense against removal work. But I tried for eight years under Obama to get a nonprofit, you know, foundations to fund defense against removal, and, and they wouldn't even talk to me. Yeah. They just didn't want to talk about it. They were doing other things. And, you know, now they're doing it. But, I mean, you can actually um, you, you can actually chart, you know, all these nonprofits that opened up doing, you know, nonprofit, you know, defense against removal stuff to, you know, the middle of January of, you know, 2017. Everyone we talked to underscored the need for immigrants especially undocumented immigrants, to have allies and friends. So much of the immigration system depends on a lack of connection to resources and advocates. For every Jill Bikindu, who has a Greenwood Forest Baptist Church, there are untold numbers of immigrants whose stories don't get told in the public sphere 
and who don't have access to the resources that they need to advocate for themselves. The following is a roundtable discussion between myself, uh, Wesley Spears Newsom, and Lauren Eford about the role of faith communities in addressing the uh, immigration issues that we've been talking about on Inhospitable. Hi, Wes. Hi, Lauren. Hi, Stephen. Hi, Stephen. Um, so what do you guys think faith communities, religious or otherwise, so I guess communities, um, can do about the state of uh, immigration law in the U.S. right now? First of all, we probably all need to be listening to one another, right? Telling stories um, and organizing together. Um, I sometimes wonder, you know, if we had been in more conversation with um, Samuel Oliver Bruno's church, um, how those stories might have turned out um, differently when we started to realize the similarities between um, Samuel's story and Jill's story. Um, you know, at the time some of this was happening, um, I was at a conference in Boston. I was going to a church that had um, declared public sanctuary um, and learning from them and, you know, really thinking before this happened that we needed to learn the process of declaring public sanctuary and what this looked like. Um, and then, you know, months later, find ourselves in conversation, protest with other um, organizers in different states who are, you know, thinking about developing sanctuary networks um, like North Carolina had. And I find myself thinking, I actually really think that we need to be having uh, conversations about this behind closed doors now because, you know, if we had to do this all over again, I mean, obviously, Jill was taking the lead on decisions that were made and whether he wanted to appear or not, but knowing what we know, if we had a glass ball, um, we certainly would not have followed uh, the process and tried to be, um, you know, letting, you know, ICE take the lead and, and following all their rules, right? Um, but I'm wondering, you know, if we are going to continue to be in the political climate that we're in right now, um, the conversations that we need to have might need to be something about um, what does it mean to hold sanctuary um, in a different kind of way, a less public way than we have before. I think one of the things that, uh, especially uh, Christian communities, but really all faith communities forget is uh, the amount of power they have if they build coalitions and seek to actually change something. Um, you know, right now the sanctuary networks are very disparate and, and kind of, you know, mm -hmm. a church here, a church there, um, you know, the, the sanctuary movement within Christian churches hasn't really connected with, uh, you know, Jewish folk and Muslim folk who are interested in the same thing, but um, no one is applying the amount of pressure necessary on Congress mm -hmm. uh, to overhaul immigration in the way that it needs to. Um, but if all of the faith communities in this country um, who care about immigrants, uh, which should be all of them, but we know it's not quite all of them. But if all of them were to kind of um, build a united front and say, we're not, we're going to continue to hide and house and do whatever we can to resist you until you fix this. Right. I think, you know, there's, it's hard to resist that level of, uh, of um, power and pressure that would come upon them um, if people actually built it together. Mm. 
Yeah, I think we need to look to historical examples of this happening in the United States because this happened before. Mm -hmm. When the Fugitive Slave Act was passed, before the Civil War, congregations in the North formed what were called vigilance committees that looked out for federal agents who were going to come snatch up people mm -hmm. from their communities who were formerly enslaved people. And they would actively resist as a community the presence of federal agents and um, point them out in public so that everyone knew what was going on. Because mm -hmm. so much of what I think communities and institutions can do, religious or not, is make people aware of what's happening. Um, so much of, it's like Marty says earlier in one of his interviews, like nobody was talking about this on a national level mm -hmm. for almost a decade um, before the Trump administration. That it, it was only the expansiveness of the immigration enforcement that triggered national attention mm -hmm. on immigrants and immigration as, a, as an issue. And we need to do that more. We need to do that all the time. We need to tell these stories. They need to be front and center. And we need to talk about it. Yeah, and the only way to do that, this is something we talked about in the live episode, um, but the only way that you can do that is if you have relationships with immigrant communities. Uh, if you know when stuff is happening to immigrants, and if you're isolated, mm -hmm. um, then you, you will never know. If we weren't friends with Jill, then we would not have known anything that was going on mm -hmm. in his life um, and when he was detained and deported. Um, and so, you know, building those relationships is vital to, to even being able to make people aware of what's going on. Because in many cases, it's dangerous for immigrants and immigrant communities to do that awareness work for themselves. Um, so it has to be done with them um, as their friends and as their allies. And I think also having conversations with other people, right, to dispel myths about mm -hmm. um, immigration law. We still have that. Um, you know, there are many people in our congregation who still don't understand um, the immigration system, even though it's been front and center in our community, right? So relationships with people who are immigrants, but also relationships with people who uh, need to have their lenses changed and educated on mm. what it's actually like for immigrants in our country. Yeah. Um, how do you all think uh, uh, faith communities should think about the immigration system that we have right now? and the way it's treating people. If you look at both the Jewish and the Christian scriptures, the bulk of them are about immigrants. That you look at the entire Old Testament or the entirety of the Jewish scriptures, and they're about an immigrant people. And the laws that are laid down in the Old Testament are hyper-conscious conscious of of immigrants in the community. They say that they should be treated as citizens, um, not as strangers. For you were... For you were once strangers in the land of Egypt. So like everything in the Old Testament for Christians is premised upon the liberation of immigrants from Egypt, the liberation of slaves and the migration of people. And then in the New Testament... Um, for Christians in the letter to the Ephesians a whole our whole salvation is narrated as the story of people who were once strangers being granted citizenship 
or amnesty into the kingdom of God. In Ephesians chapter 2, the, the author talks about you were once strangers to the commonwealth of Israel, but you were made citizens. And you even become, became children mm-hmm. in the family of God. And I think that that story should be front and center in how any Jewish or Christian person approaches immigration. Um, for Christians particularly, our salvation depends on our own welcome as strangers to God. And if we are not going to be welcoming to strangers in our country, then like for those who want a Christian nation, you certainly don't have one. Um, and all Christians, I think their public policy should be guided in some way by their faith. And when it's not friendly to immigrants, it's not Christian. Yeah, one of the things I think that trips up certain types of Christians in, in the U.S. is that we tend to separate the government and the actions of the government and the policies of the government from what individual Christians do in their lives in this kind of false way where we say, well, it's not the government's responsibility to do X or Y, or I'm not responsible for what the government does um, to immigrants. But that kind of sets aside the entire concept of what the American government is, which is us. The whole point of representative democracy is that we are the ones doing this. We the people. We the people, exactly. So you can't simply push it off onto this formless government as the one taking these actions. Whether you're on the right or the left, you know, you might say, well, it's only individual responsibility to do X or Y, or you might, as somebody who's, you know, left-leaning, you might say, oh, the government's doing X or Y and and be upset by it. But the problem is that we are the government. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when Jesus says in Matthew 25 that I was a stranger and you didn't welcome me, that's us. We're responsible what the government does to people in our country. Yeah, and sure, the rule of law is what the rule of law is, but it doesn't have to be that way. We live in a country where we can change the laws. (laughs) And that's never been um, an excuse for people of faith to obey the law of human beings instead of the law of God, as we Mm -hmm. see very clearly in in our scriptures. I also think part of our problem is that we, white Christians, right, are often thinking of ourselves as the people who are in power and the dominant person who gets to decide if we want to welcome, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And the problem of that is that our faith story would not support that, right? Because we are Christians, we are the Gentiles, we are the people who have been grafted into Israel's story, and we are immigrants into God's family. And I wonder how it might change the narrative if we could think about ourselves as immigrants ourselves into God's family. What are some lessons that we uh, feel like we've learned in this process that might be helpful for others uh, to keep in mind, either other faith communities, other pastors who are trying to um, deal with a similar issue, or faith communities who are just trying to do right by immigrants in this country? Be careful who you trust. Hmm. Scripture is full of lessons as to why you should not trust the empire Mm -hmm. and like from the Babylonian deportations to the massacre of the innocents in the New Testament like there are very few examples in scripture of like being too trusting Mm -hmm. of governing authorities and 
I think that mistrust we need to have needs to be combined with what you were talking about, Stephen, our, our democratic responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, that we should never trust something is just going to happen. Mm-hmm. And we should never trust that people will do good because it's good. Mm-hmm. Well, that might be hard because that person might be your friend, right? Mm-hmm. Or they might be someone that you know, you've built alliances with in other ways, but you might have to realize you can't fully trust them. It's like how immigration was so... Like, th- this issue was already bad under the Obama administration, but because so many people were sympathetic to Barack Obama, mm-hmm. there was... To, to criticize it was seen as fringe. Mm-hmm. And partisanship can blind everyone to what we should really be concerned about. And we see that happen on both sides of the aisle. Uh, the concern is much more with like party loyalty than mm-hmm. it is with what's actually happening to real people. And I care more about the real people. Yeah, I mean, to follow up on that, one of the things that I think I've learned certainly, and probably all of us have learned, is that um, if you choose to, to go down this road, uh, there will be people who cannot set aside their political ideologies mm-hmm. um, to go there with you. Um, and you have to be ready and willing to say, we're going to do what's right, um, regardless of whether you think you can stay here or not. Um, you know, in our, in our community, we, we're going to follow God and do what God would call us to do. Um, we're going to differentiate ourselves in that way and say, um, you know, this is who we are and you, you might lose people mm-hmm. um, when you take a stand like that, when you choose to, um, you know, to be truthful and to, and to do what's right. But that's always been true. It's like the hymn says, though none go with me, <laughs> still I will I follow. Still will follow. That's right. This is the conclusion of season one of Inhospitable. We'd like to say a special thanks to all of the listeners. If you'd like to keep up with our next steps, make sure you visit inhospitableusa.org or follow us on Twitter at inhospitableusa. Inhospitable is a podcast from Greenwood Forest Baptist Church of Cary, North Carolina. It is written by Wesley Spears Newsom, narrated and produced by Stephen Stacks, with music by Stephen Stacks. We'd also like to say a big thank you to everyone we interviewed for the show, but especially to Jill Bikindu, whose faith and hope is an inspiration to everyone who hears his story. <laughs>